It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday, the 23rd of October, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you know, the government does not hold a majority of seats in the Dáil. The Fine Gael-led minority government relies on the support of the largest party in opposition. The confidence and supply agreement it has with Fianna Fáil guarantees support for passing crucial votes such as the budget three budgets in fact and this has been the arrangement for the last three years but with the latest budget this agreement has now run its course this week negotiators for both parties will meet to see if there are the grounds to renew the deal the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has said this should be completed by Halloween the Fianna Fáil leader Micheál Martin has said it may take up to Christmas to finalise. Fianna Fáil TD Mark McSharry would prefer to go to the polls he's on the line to tell us why? Why so, Mark McSharry? Uh, good morning, Michael. Well, my position isn't a new one. I mean, that was the case uh, for the last three years. I favoured national government rather than confidence and supply back in 2016, but the consensus was to go with it. We put forward Michael Martin, as you know, three times for a T-shirt, but uh, nobody joined in. Um, so we did, I suppose, a responsible thing at the time. Uh, it's now come to its end uh, once we get through the social welfare bill and finance bill. So uh, my my personal position, and it is a personal one, is that uh, you know it's run its course, and, and it's time to um, allow the people to reassess the arithmetic of it all. And there are others, uh, front bench uh, members of uh, your party, who would agree, or they're not. We well, have to speak to them individually. Um, I mean, the situation is that we agreed that that these um, spokespeople or negotiators would uh, would uh, um, review. Uh, the last three years, and that's what's going on at the moment. So presumably they'll report back to us when the mm. time comes. Uh, and what, what, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean that you were voted down? Does that mean that we would vote it down? No. no does it mean that you? That, no. Does it mean that you were voted down when you say you uh, agreed for the negotiators to bargain on behalf of Fianna Fáil with Fine Gael? Uh, that's not what you want. So does that mean that you were voted down? No, it doesn't operate like that. Um, basically. Um, how confidence supply came about was it was a consensus view taken and we'll see what that consensus view is in time. My input will be, as I've outlined to you, um, but, uh, I mean, I won't be leaving the party as a result of an outcome, mm-hmm. put it that way. I mean, that's just to be a martyr to somebody else's cause. Sure, sure. But certainly I, I, would, be, I, I would be putting forward the view that it's time to 
um, consult the electorate again on the arithmetic at all, because I think the arithmetic, while it was the people's choice, um, you know, led to a level of fragmentation, which I hope never happens again, mm. uh, regardless of who the winners or losers are, because I think um, it, it hasn't served uh, to provide the level of government or indeed opposition that, that, that best serves the country. Okay, but just to try and understand uh, the thinking within your party, when you say there's a, a consensus view, does that mean there's a, a majority view? Yeah, that tends to be. I mean, we, we, we don't hold votes within the parliamentary party because it's never been necessary. So we would debate or discuss an issue uh, and arrive at a consensus position. And feeding into that process, you know what mine is in advance. That's all uh, I'm saying. Mine is a personal view and we'll see how things play out. Okay, uh, so how do you come to that position? Is it that Michal Martin says, this is what we're doing? No, that's that's not how uh, how he operates. No, um, he, he would put forward. Look, these are the options. Uh, mm. Here's what I think, and uh, people can contribute to that, and and, and a consensus is arrived at. Um, how, how do you come to a consensus without a vote? I don't understand. Uh, well, uh, how do you come to a consensus with your producer? Do you take votes, or do you discuss, throw around ideas, discuss the merits of them, and then come to a decision of what's going to be on the show the next day? I mean, that's how people come to a consensus. Mm. It's the same in a parliamentary party. Mm. Uh, But did you object to this consensus opinion? No, I mean, it's always how it's operated, you know. So, I mean, it doesn't arise for now because there's a social welfare bill and the finance bill Mm. to give effect Mm. to the Mm. third budget. Mm. Yeah, uh, that could take up pretty close to Christmas, and and uh, so you'd like to see a spring election, is it? The the, Mar- the Mark McSharry view is is that as soon as it's practicable after that, that uh, that we consult the people. Mm. The, a spring election, in other words, would be your preferred option. Well, that's what you're telling me. I mean, if it's January or February, it's January or February. I mean, there are no, there are no good times for an election. I mean, mm. nobody particularly likes elections. Certainly not candidates or politicians, and I'm sure it's disruptive for the public too, and it costs money. But I think. Because of the fragmentation in the door and the fact that we've had this three years now, I think that the time is appropriate. So, look, if it's next month or three months' time, so be it. But, uh, you know, in the immediate term would be my view. Uh, and what about the prospect of a no-deal scenario in the Brexit negotiations? That's going to be hugely challenging in any event. So, I mean, if an election is called, um, the executive stay in place until a new government is formed. So the, the country is never left without a government in that context. Uh, and as I said, there's going to be no good time. If there's a no-deal Brexit, then mm. you're in a very, very difficult period under um, World Trade Organization rules and very, very high tariffs. Mm. Um, so hopefully we don't get to that, but it's quite possible. But uh, we can't be held to ransom by uh, the British government or, in effect, the DUP. So we have to continue to manage our own affairs. Okay, because a, a Fine Gael minister, Charlie Flanagan, has been suggesting that Micheál Martin wants the House of Commons to decide when an election is held in this country. Well, I mean, it would be a rare occasion that I'd agree with Minister Flanagan, uh, and I certainly wouldn't agree with him on that. Okay, but you do understand his point, uh, because Micheál Martin has been saying it would be irresponsible to hold an election until after the Brexit negotiations have completed. Well, I think he, he was saying that either it would be the no-deal situation or we would have this ratification in the House of Commons that takes place or was alleged to going to take place in January. So, um, you know, I don't have a difficulty with that. Um, it's still in the immediate term and, and probably very shortly after the Social Welfare and Finance Bill conclude in any event. Hmm. Uh, but uh, what do you believe the arrangement you have with Fine Gael at the moment is doing in terms of your party's identity? Well, I suppose each party has to um, 
you know, stand by its own positions and, and the confidence and supply uh, agreement has made it difficult for FINA for, for Fianna Fáil to do that and to express our true selves in terms of policy. It was a responsible thing to do in, in the absence of us being able to get Micheál Martin in his T-shirt. I mean, the, as we know, Sinn Féin, the independents and other small parties sat on their hands at that occasion. There was only one option left and that was to facilitate a government, which we did. And in terms of, um, you know, the standing of, of, of us as a party, that came secondary. Uh, but you're right, it certainly wouldn't have helped in terms of um, uh, in terms of our own identity. Probably didn't help Finnegal either, for that matter. But uh, and, and I think the fragmentation of the doll uh, when we head into the next election, whenever it is, I hope that, that, that the people, whoever they may vote for, bear in mind that, that we should try to avoid the level of fragmentation we've had, because at times it has led to very, very poor government and poor opposition. Uh, do you think uh, that Fianna Fáil should uh, take responsibility for better or worse uh, for the record of the government? No, I think we facilitated a government and that gave us a, a proportion of input in terms of the direction of budgets as opposed to individual measures. Um, so, I mean, I think we can take responsibility for facilitating a government when none was going to be available. Um, but I, I, I don't know that we have... 100% ownership of individual measures rather than mm. the direction in terms of you know the two-to-one split on taxation and, and uh, expenditure uh, and other directional things in terms of health, uh, in terms of, of, of housing. But mm. look, we're not in government and, and that's been the difficulty with this whole situation. Do you think people know that though? Do you think uh, when people go to vote the next time, whenever that is, whether that's before Christmas, in the spring, or in two years from now, that people will say to themselves, well, look, uh, Fianna Fáil facilitated this government and therefore aren't responsible for the housing crisis. Fianna Fáil supported this government and aren't responsible for all the problems in health, mental health, the position on the north-south interconnector or broadband or any of these other issues that affect people's lives. No, that's a matter for government. I mean, like if any of us were in government, uh, if you were a minister, if I were a minister, we'd certainly be doing things completely differently. But I mean, it's difficult to, and that's the uniqueness of this country. Well, it's a matter for people. Uh, the, the, like the question that I put to you was, do you think that people will make that connection or that divide, as the case may be? Uh, and that is going back to the question about your identity. Are, are you seen as one and the same thing at this stage? Well, we're not the same thing. I don't know how people will judge that uh, in terms of, I would hope that they would judge it on the basis that, okay, Fianna Fáil were left in a possible position. They did the responsible thing in helping to ensure that a government was facilitated. It was a level of input in terms of policy direction, but nothing like uh, that, that on the one hand we could claim a huge amount of credit, or on the other hand that we could be uh, apportioned a huge amount of, of, of blame. I mean, I think this government has failed miserably in terms of health and housing, and in terms of uh, regional divide, from my own perspective, being from the northwest, and, and there are matters that need to be dealt with. And uh, um, as to what the people judge uh, when it comes to election, I very much hope that they, they, they see the situation for what it has been and was, mm. and, uh, and, 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 and judge people on the, the, the manifestos and uh, policy proposals that they're going to put forward in their own right for the coming election. In the meanwhile, the steel might uh, run for a, another two years. Uh, you agree with negotiating that? You're part of this consensus uh, to negotiate it, are you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, as I said to you, I mean, if it's many times in the price you pay for being in a, in a collective political party is I mean, there's aspects of policy that you'll you'll, you'll be in full agreement mm. with, and there's others that you won't. But you, you you must go with the consensus that there needs to be party discipline in that regard. All I'm saying is, to the extent that I can inform the debate and I can inform that consensus, it'll be 
look, it's time to call time on this particular initiative and, and, and ask the people um, to reassess the arithmetic in the door. Uh, and in the event uh, that uh, this is negotiated successfully, your view is, uh, I gather your view is, uh, that it will damage the party. It wouldn't be my preference. I mean, I think that uh, uh, I think that uh, it's important for democracy uh, that you've got strong government and strong opposition. And I think confidence and supply uh, as a method, while granted uh, the one that was chosen and the only one that was available, uh, is not one that serves the country best. I think it serves and supports the system rather than the people. And that's why I would prefer to have, uh, you know, clear government, clear opposition. Okay, well, uh, I think a, a little unclear this morning as uh, to the meaning of consensus, if uh, uh, I can put it and that way. Consensus is easy. Without the benefit of a vote, it becomes clear that the majority mm. wants something, uh, and that's what... That, that, that's, that's, what that's, that's a majority view. Okay. Uh, yeah. Let's uh, talk uh, about abortion now as well, if we can, uh, because uh, you've said that you've changed your mind that you won't be able to support the bill going through the House Uh, and one of the concerns that you have is that it'll become a method of contraception for some people. Yeah, I mean, I could have been clearer last Thursday in outlining that. I was was referring exclusively to men in that regard. Uh, It was the end of of, uh, 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 my contribution where I said that, look, I I had thought, having been a no-voter, that I would be in a position and be able to um, support the legislation, given the outcome of the referendum, having read the legislation and considered it very, very carefully. Unfortunately, that's that's not the case. Uh, I'm not going to be able to do that. Um, it's a very, very personal issue to me. I can understand that uh, it's contrary to what 66 or 70 percent of the people say, but uh, it's one, as I said, that uh, in line with my own conscience, I just cannot do. So I just set the record straight from my own perspective last Thursday. As I said, I could have been clearer because that contraceptive comment is very specific to men as opposed to women. Mm. Uh, and I do understand that, that many, many people uh, have, have a different view to mine, and I'm not condemning anybody. I just have my own personal one. And, and uh, uh, having said one thing and uh, about to do something else, I, I wanted to set the record straight last Thursday, and that's what I did. Well, your view is in line, is it not, with the majority of Fianna Fáil members uh, as articulated at the vote at the Ordesh? Now, I think 18, if I remember correctly, 18 Fianna Fáil TDs said uh, that uh, they weren't in favour of the referendum of repealing the 8th. Yeah, that's true. Um, but look, I suppose... That's water under the bridge. The referendum took place. The people spoke very decisively. And in terms of my parliamentary party colleagues, mm. some may abstain, some may support, and then there's myself who, who vote against, maybe others. I haven't consulted uh, colleagues on it. Uh, as I said, it's just a very, very specific personal view. I don't condemn anybody else's view. I'm not trying to oppose my view on anybody mm. else. Clearly, the legislation has the numbers in the doll to pass, so abortion will be available. Yeah, but that's coincidental, isn't it? And uh, I suppose that's the politics of it, uh, because under a, a competence and supply agreement, I think uh, the government would be looking to Fianna Fall to ensure that the will of uh, the people as they spoke in the referendum would be upheld. Uh, but you're not willing to do that. Well, I think it is going to be upheld, and I'm sure you'd agree that the 30 to 35%. But that's coincidental, as I said, because of the numbers. If if, if I could could finish. Mm. Uh, If uh, I'm sure you wouldn't mind that the the 35% of people that voted no have have a voice in there as well on this issue. 
Oh, no, I, I understand that. Uh, but in a, a confidence and supply arrangement, uh, and it is a, a political question, uh, the government would be looking to the party supplying it with that confidence to uh, to support uh, the legislation on foot of a referendum, wouldn't it? No, the confidence and supply covered um, votes of confidence and, and financial measures. That's all. Nothing to do with health legislation. Mm. No, I know that. Uh, and issues like confidence in uh, the government and uh, so on. But uh, in reality, it would rightly respect that the outcome of a referendum would be upheld. Uh, well, that, that, that is going to happen, I think. <laughs> yes, but that's coincidental. Yeah, no, my understanding is, uh, mm. well, certainly the free vote uh, or conscience vote certainly applies in, in, in Fianna Fáil. Uh, it did for the referendum in Fine Gael. I don't know whether it does for the legislation uh, in Sinn Féin. Pat just went missing for the vote, so I don't know what he's doing. Mm. But well, I just have my, 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 yes. my, my own personal position, which uh, which I've done. Uh, it would have been easier to sit in my hands, say nothing, maybe not be there for the vote. We wouldn't be having this conversation, but as a public representative, I felt you know, people were entitled to have me set the record straight. Okay, well, look, thank you for doing it here with us this morning. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Michael. Take thank you indeed. Finnafall TD, Mark McSherry. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, up to 180 jobs are to be lost as a result of the closure of the authentic food company in Dundalk announced on Friday. Gone. Brendan Ogle, senior officer with the United Trade Union, is on the line. Brendan, there's been a lot of confusion, a lot of concern. Uh, perhaps uh, you can help clarify the situation for us this morning. Good morning, Michael. Um, yes. A really difficult time for the workers in Authentic, the Authentic Food Company in Dundalk. Um, Friday, the employer, um, and that's basically a parent company uh, resident in Manchester, in England, um, went to the High Court and sought and got the appointment of an interim liquidator um, to go into the, the plant in Dundalk, uh, in, in the Finnebear Industrial Estate there, and basically seek in the first instance to find a buyer for the plant as a going concern and if that doesn't happen um, wind up and sell the assets of the company so for a company that's been there in various forms uh, just looking when I was there yesterday at the plaque outside opened by Joe Walsh um, TD in 1992 uh, originally uh, this is a terrible blow um, and uh, a really difficult industrial relations financial and potentially legal situation for us to deal with. All right. Uh, and uh, what a, a, about uh, the company itself or the health of the company? Was this a, a profitable organisation as you understand it? Certainly, Michael, up until recently, um, all the accounts that had been lodged by this company um, indicated that it was a profitable company. Um, in the last number of weeks, we started to receive concerns from the plant itself from our members in the plant, that there seems to be some changes and uh, there seemed to be a slowdown, there seemed to be a failure to upgrade machinery, there seemed to be some difficulty in sourcing or at least producing raw materials. It's obviously a food production plant. Uh, The local management, and I I don't blame the local management, um, but the local management weren't able to shed much light on these changes uh, and we we attempted to engage verbally and ultimately three times in writing with the company in England. But um, they were not interested in engaging. 
Um, and that really concerns us and concerns us because any business uh, that has hit a difficulty, and this was an unexpected difficulty given that the accounts that had been lodged, um, not only reaches out to its employees and to its representatives to see can, can the situation be reversed, but in this case, the employees were reaching out to the business. They were effectively saying, we know there's a problem, we see there's a problem, talk to us and we'll see, well, can we help? And all they got was stonewalling, all they got was PR, British PR companies, um, and it appears that a quite cynical, cold, calculated decision was made in Manchester to, to treat the workers with the, with the utmost, not only disrespect, goes beyond disrespect, and I'll go through some of the difficulties we face, if you don't mind, mm. uh, in detail, and you, you'll see why I say that, okay. uh, and, and go straight into the courts as a first resort. Um, it's a dreadful way to treat to do business. It's a dreadful way to treat workers. It's a dreadful way to treat the community. Um, and, and the difficulties that it has created for the workers are really pronounced to go beyond most redundancy situations that I've ever dealt with. Uh, and has local management been treated in the same way? Uh, I take it uh, from what you've said, you officially met with local management to, to bring your concerns to them, but they weren't able to answer your questions. They weren't able to produce any information. There were a number of meetings set up in the plant, um, general meetings, meetings with management, but they were kept um, in the dark, in other words, as well, Brandon, were they? They were, they were right. Michael, kept yeah. very much in the dark. And, and genuinely so, I have absolutely no doubt about that. So this came um, as a, a surprise to the management, let alone the workers, despite the suspicion there was uh, no official indication that it was going to go into liquidation. Well, it, it didn't come as a surprise that there was a problem, but the information yes. about mm. what was happening and what was going to come next. And, and if I can just explain some of the detail, because when people hear Please about so, yeah. a plant... When people hear about a plant closing, uh, myself included, you assume that the workers have been called into a room, that they've been given their notice, that they've been given letters of redundancy, that they can go off and claim social welfare, that they can look for other employment. That's what people assume. The way this employer has behaved, that's not even the case. Um, Technically, technically, um, the liquidator in control of the company now still employs these workers and is unable to give them a P45. That means that they're unable, uh, first of all, at least technically, to seek social welfare. There was fantastic support yesterday in Dundalk. We had a general meeting yesterday in Ballymascanlan and in the plant. There was a fantastic support from the local officials in the social welfare department in Dundalk, and we are hoping to work through that. But technically, these people have no P45. They're still employed for the next 30 days plus but the, the, the employer, who is now a liquidator, has told them, we're employing you, but we've no money to pay you. So there's so no wages. To, no wages from last Friday, Michael. No money that is owed in terms of overtime, in terms of annual leave, in terms of the, the lying week, you know, the lying mm, week yeah. principle. And none of, none of that is available. And we're in the run-up to Christmas. Um, r- apart from the, the obvious disaster from the loss of a, the apparent loss of a... a, a, a a key pillar of business in that area. The treatment of these workers by this company is absolutely disgraceful. Right. Absolutely disgraceful. That's a, a shocking situation for anybody to find themselves in. Uh, and uh, can this be cleared up or, or uh, is there some confusion because uh, local Fine Gael TD was telling LMFM News yesterday uh, that uh, the claims for welfare are going to be dealt with straight away? 
Well, I'm not going to comment on that, Michael. So, but that's not the case, is it? No. Well, well, well. There is no lack of there is no lack of support from the officials, the local officials uh, in the North Loud and Dundalk area hmm. in the Department of Social Welfare. That is absolutely true to say. But there's and nothing they can do without a P45. It's, it's, it's also true to say that the, 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 the workers will be putting in claims. Yeah. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with those claims. In any case I've been involved in in the past, they have initially been declined because the workers are technically, and only technically, employed by the company. But having said that, uh, the local officials and indeed the principal officer, and we are going to be getting in touch with the minister at some point today, um, I'm sure are going to do their best to help. But mm. the law and the procedures as they apply to social welfare and as they apply to redundancy do not currently take account of an employer behaving in such a cynical, cold, calculated way. And, there, and we really do need to get political support. I'm delighted that Peter Fitzpatrick says that. No, it was Fergus O'Dowd, sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I assume, I, oh, Fergus O'Dowd. Mm-hmm. I'm delighted Fergus says that. Um, I assume he, Peter... Uh, um, and all the local representatives will be on to the Minister for Social Protection on behalf of their constituents, mm. ensuring, in fact, that that is the case. Okay, Brendan, in this we sense... We political say, action here, not, not rhetoric. In this sense, Brendan, you say that uh, the staff are technically uh, employed by the company only. Uh, which company? Uh, is it the authentic food company that was in Dundalk, or is it the parent company in Manchester, or is there a difference between the two? Well, that's a very good question, Michael. The company that went into court on Friday is called the Authentic Food Company Manufacturing Ireland Limited. Um, And that company is a subsidiary, clearly with strong links, board members, management decisions to a parent company made in England. The parent company made in England has not been wound up. In fact, it appears to be very profitable. I heard tales when I met the members yesterday of profitable lines in the Dundalk plant being moved to Manchester in the last few months, um, thereby disadvantaging the Dundalk plant. But the parent company is not wound up. D- d- disadvantaging the Dundalk plant or running it down? Well, that's a, you know, maybe a judge will have to decide that at the end of the day, Michael, but, but certainly the, fo- the former and potentially the latter. And we have a situation here now whereby if it is the case, if it is the case that the parent company have deliberately run down a disadvantage, we'll use your term, run down is fine, deliberately run down the Dundalk plant in an unfair manner and then treated their members in this way, their workers in this way, with the intention of passing the cost on to the Irish taxpayer, by the way, then, you know, we will have to see is there a legal remedy for that because it's simply unacceptable that anybody would behave in that way. All right, Brendan, I have to leave it there, but uh, I'm sure uh, we'll talk again in the coming days. Uh, But thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Brendan Ogle, Senior Officer with uh, the Unite Trade Union. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, 86% of women say that they're happier since uh, they became mothers uh, than they were previously, but 83% say uh, that uh, they have become overwhelmed. Uh, we're joined by Sinead O'Moore, who's Head of Strategic Development with Every Mum, which has carried out uh, the survey. Good morning to you, Sinead, and thanks for joining us. Uh, 50% of women have uh, told you that Ireland does not support motherhood uh, so there's mixed feelings clearly good morning yes there there is the study that we conducted um with our community and the every mum community 
has given us just really rich and refreshing information into how women are approaching this transition and how they're feeling throughout it. And I think what it has identified is this kind of complex balancing act um, and the, the feelings of genuine happiness, overwhelming love, are also balanced with a lot of self-doubt, a lot of anxiety, um, and a lot of loss of identity as well. So it's just presenting a really challenging time. And I think what's so refreshing about this study is that women are beginning to feel empowered enough to say, actually, it's not as easy as it looks. And I do need some help. Mm, well, I think every woman finds that out. Indeed, every parent finds that out uh, when it comes home to roost, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, as you say, there's mixed feelings. A, a lot of uh, the women have told you that their biggest concern is that their children are happy. And a lot of the women have told you that they miss having time to themselves or time with their partner. Yeah, I, I, we find that very interesting. So there seems to be, when it comes to time, I mean, time is such a precious commodity for anybody. But time when you transition from that phase in your life where you're just operating to yourself and your your, your own demands mm. to then becoming a mum when you're you're totally focused on the needs twenty four seven of your kids. And really what we're saying is that women are kind of relegating time by themselves as the last thing to do. So they're definitely spending time with their family and they're t- spending some time with partner. But what they miss most it actually does time by themselves. And we asked in the survey, if you had just 30 minutes, just 30 minutes that's completely to you, what would you do? The responses we got back were, i just go for a walk. Mm. I would have an uninterrupted bath or shower. I mean, these are not big demands, but yet these are the things that women are actually desperately craving in motherhood. Or perhaps when the children are a little bit older, what they would do with the time that they have to themselves when they're not uh, caring for the children 24-7. And this comes back uh, to this issue of the belief that Ireland doesn't support motherhood. Uh, A lot of women talking about uh, a flexible work culture and how uh, that's not something that uh, is attainable and uh, more talking about uh, childcare and the cost of childcare. Yeah, there seems to be, and, and this has been well discussed, there's a lot of pressure in today's society. A lot of mums who would like the opportunity to not work as much as they do, but yet are constrained because of mortgages and bills. And then those that actually want to return to the workforce, but cannot afford the childcare costs that come with it. And there seems to be just this um, this constant battle between where is my time and energy best served? Am I doing any of it right? What am I sacrificing if I pick A or B? And why can't I have more choice? And that's really the, the, the need. There isn't, a, there isn't a simple solution. There isn't a perfect plan. Mm. But what they're looking for is, can I not have more flexibility? Can I not have more choice? And why can't I have access to affordable childcare, which will allow me to pursue those career ambitions. And uh, is it that women are making sacrifices but they expected those sacrifices and don't mind making those sacrifices uh, for that matter but uh, at the same time uh, whilst they were expecting that to be the situation uh, the support that they expected isn't forthcoming. Yeah I think that there's a lot of support in the early days in the early months Um, and what we saw from the survey is that actually as mums as women navigate through motherhood and have more children or their children become older, 
the support actually uh, lessens. You know, so there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of an outpouring of love, I suppose, as soon as a baby is born. But actually, mums stay busy, they stay overwhelmed, and they stay wondering, well, when am I going to get a piece of me back? Um, and that is particularly true when it comes to that mm. career decision. Yeah, maybe when they're 18 or 24 is the case, <laughs> maybe. Sinead, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Sinead O'Murray, Head of Strategic Development with Every Mum. Now, 330 asylum seekers are working. Uh, this follows a change in the rules that came into force on the 1st of July. Rosemary Hennigan, Policy and Advocacy Officer with the Irish Refugee Council, is on the line. Uh, I, I think there might be some surprise at the amount of people who have actually secured employment. Is there, Rosemary? Hi, Michael. Um, yes, it's good to see that it's it's up and it's operational and that people are actually getting into employment at this point. Um, we weren't sure if it would take time and there are a number of barriers, so it was kind of difficult to say in the beginning whether or not those barriers would be um, kind of fully prohibitive or if people would be able to work around them. And it seems now from the figures which have been released that people are actually getting to uh, getting into jobs, and that's very, very positive. Okay, and over 2,000 people uh, applied uh, to uh, be given this permit, which would allow them to work. Yes, that's it. And I think um, there's, there has been some confusion around who's eligible and who isn't, because a lot of people who will be at appeal stage are actually ineligible. Um, it's only people who haven't yet received their first instance decision on their application. So I think the number of people applying shows the level of interest, but... Um, there's, that probably explains the difference between those who have been granted the permission to work and those who haven't. Right. Uh, uh, difference there. Uh, and about uh, two-thirds have uh, been granted. One and a half thousand or thereabouts uh, given permission and uh, just over yes. 600 were declined. That's correct, yes. Right. Uh, and that's because of uh, the stage in the appeals process uh, that those people were in, you say? Yes, exactly. So um, if, you, if, you've been, if you come to Ireland and you're waiting over nine months for a first instance decision, which means that at the first stage with the International Protection Office, your application hasn't yet been heard. Then in light of that delay and after the Supreme Court decision on the case, it means that you are given um, permission to work. Um, but if you have already had a first instance, instance decision from the International Protection Office, then you're not eligible to work um, at the moment. That will change going forward because once you have your permission to work in Ireland, you will now going forward have it right through the appeal stage. Uh, and have you been hearing from people in the Refugee Council who have sought and found work? Yes, we have. And it's a very wide range of, um, of employment types. So it kind of ranges from um, catering and hotel work to mechanics right up to um, an engineer and software development. So it's really positive to hear that as well, because there's a lot of different uh, skill sets within um, the international protection applicant population. So it's good to hear that there's a variety of jobs um, being secured. Right. Uh, and is it uh, that they have known somebody working in one of uh, these businesses uh, that helped them to secure a position? Yes. And I think it's also just a very um, positive position within the employment sector generally and, and in the economy. There's a lot mm. of areas of um, the labour market where there are shortages, which means that their employers are actually actively going and looking for people. So we've had a number of employers get in touch with us looking to um, to find out how they might employ people which is very positive. It shows a level of interest there. Mm. At the same time, we have heard as well from um, people who've been trying to, to get jobs who've, who have found that employers aren't always aware of the changes. So um, there are some employers who still believe that they need a stamp four, for example, which they don't. 
So there's there's definitely a bit of a there's a few teething issues and a kind of a setting in period as well. Uh, and what does this what, what does this mean uh, for the individual and indeed for the state? Uh, are they self dependent now as a, a result of this, or do they continue uh, to receive assistance from the state? So it very much depends on the level of income. Um, so if it's if it's very low income, they won't they still still might be receiving um, support from the state, or they still might be residents in direct provision accommodation. We think that the level of dependency will increase over time, but unfortunately, or sorry, independency, I should say, will increase over time. But unfortunately, with the housing crisis the way it is, um, it is very difficult for people to secure housing outside of direct mm-hmm. provision. So that might still be there for a little what, little so, bit longer. So they'd receive the housing in direct provision, but they wouldn't receive uh, the weekly allowance, would they? Again, it, just, it depends on the income. On the so income, if yeah. they're receiving over a certain amount, then they won't receive the direct provision allowance. Um, and if their weekly income, again, is over a certain amount, they'll also be required to pay a contribution towards the cost. Okay. So um, there's kind of a complicated way of, of apportioning income to um, what they'll be receiving. But... But yes, it, the idea, I think, is to increase the, the independence and the self-reliance and that kind of thing as well, um, which is very positive because, as you know, the direct provision of the system can be quite institutionalising and it does take away people's uh, autonomy and independence. Mm-hmm. And costly, uh, for that matter, uh, undoubtedly. Uh, if yeah. uh, people are out working, uh, then that will reduce that cost as well. Rosemary, I have to leave it there. Yeah. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Rosemary Hennigan, Policy and Advocacy Officer with the Irish Refugee Council. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning to you, Michael, and good morning to all our listeners. Yes, we had a phone call from a listener just during your interview with Deputy Mark McSharry, the Fianna Fáil TD. And the listener says, why is Fianna Fáil so intent in striking up another cosy agreement with Fine Gael? You may as well just join up the two parties all together. And while you're at it, throw in Labour for good measure, as they are all supporting the one candidate for the president. Is there any difference between them all? this listener wants to know. Well, there is, yeah. Mark McSharry doesn't want uh, another competence and supply agreement, as he told us uh, yes. this morning. He's uh, against it, but he's part of the consensus that is looking to renew it. <laughs> OK. <laughs> well, that's how it works in parties, isn't it, Yeah, Michael? well, it seems to be. Uh, until enough of them rebel, I suppose, and mm. then it'll have to change. Seamus from Dundalk, Fianna Fáil, he thinks, seem to be playing it safe at the moment. He's wonder, wondering, are they afraid of facing the electorate or what is going on, Seamus wants to know. Oh, I wouldn't say they're afraid of facing the electorate. They mightn't uh, be too keen on what the electorate might say back to them, given what uh, they're saying in the polls. Um, Declan was in touch and Declan thinks the whole thing is a load of nonsense. He thinks that um, Micheál Martin is just playing to the press as well as Leo Varadkar. He thinks that there will be an election before long. Yeah. And that there won't be any need for a confidence and supply agreement. Well, time will tell. Uh, there may be one this side of Christmas. There may be a spring election uh, or they may come to uh, a new arrangement and uh, see the government run for another couple of years. Time will tell.
Isabel, as we say, this weekend is a, a very important weekend. I'm sure a lot of people will be celebrating and doing so safely, but you're encouraged uh, to have a happy and safe Halloween. Pat Bracken, Director of Corporate Services with the National Standards Authority of Ireland, is on the line. And uh, the main piece of advice you have for people, Pat, is uh, to look out for a, a CE mark when people are out buying uh, products uh, to make sure that uh, they aren't fire hazards. Um, last year, in fact, um, over 700 Halloween products were actually seized uh, coming into Dublin because they failed to meet the European standards. So at this time of the year, just before people get into buying all the costumes, face paints and that, what we're actually saying is these products need to display a CE mark. And that's by law because they are children's toys. Mm. And a CE mark is a manufacturer's declaration that that product actually meets the EU health, safety and environmental requirements and it's fit for its intended purpose. Mm. And some of uh, these products can be very dangerous. Yes, well, I suppose when you're looking at things like costumes that we're buying for children, the most important thing that we're worried about at this time of the year is that they're flame resistant um, because it is one of those unique times when children are in proximity of lit candles and bonfires and they're wearing costumes that are made up of different materials and uh, presents a fire hazard essentially. Yeah. So what we're saying is if uh, on the product itself or on the packaging if parents are looking they should see a CE marking and if they're trying to identify a CE mark first of all we'd say maybe if they'd like to go to our website nsai.ie they'd actually see what one looks like but just to try and explain it on, on radio effectively it is two stylized letters C and an E and the E, the centre line is shorter than the two external lines and the C should be able to complete the circle by just touching the back of the E so there should be sufficient gap to allow it to complete that circle and by that people then know that at least they're buying a product that's fit for purpose now what we're all It's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. 
Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Also saying is, is fit for purpose is a very important thing to remember. It's not an insurance against a uh, costume igniting. In fact, what it is, is that it's saying it's made of flame-resistant material, which, Mm. if exposed to flame, can either melt if it's a, a, one of the man-made materials, um, or it can go on fire. But the idea is that, one, it would not ignite quickly, and then if it was removed from the source of the flame, it would then go out quickly. So we are saying that that's obviously one of the main things that people should be looking out for this year. Uh, and it's hard to even contemplate uh, the damage that can do, because if it melts or uh, goes into flames, uh, obviously it'll be in contact with skin, and this can have life-changing consequences. Unfortunately so, and I think you might recall a number of years ago, Claudia Winkleman's uh, child was actually badly burned as a result of a glitter cape coming in contact with a candle of all things. And I suppose the other thing the parents should be looking at then is just to advise the children. You don't want to scare them, Mm. and you can make it a bit of a game, but to show them that if the worst does happen, that they should know to... Uh, stop, drop and roll effectively that to use the ground to put out the flames rather than their hands because as you quite rightly say if it's a synthetic material and it has melted banging it with their hands is just going to spread that Mm, no doubt uh, and uh, I'm sure we're well past uh, the time when uh, children would have uh, dressed up uh, in plastic bags or whatever there was with your imagination and you wouldn't do that now and I suppose uh, therein lies the message don't buy the equivalent of that uh, and make sure that it is safe to wear and not highly flammable Yes and uh, but you will be surprised and again unfortunately I think about two years ago it was an adult who went to a, a party and had made it up of plastic bags and cotton right. wool Mm. and effectively uh, the costume went on fire. So while we're talking about children here, we're also talking that adults should look, because it has become a fashion now to have Halloween parties Mm. and people dressing up for those. And we're also saying in context with that, you know, people are decorating their houses and there's a lot of novelty lights and that out at the moment. And all of those sort of electrical products, they should also carry the CE mark uh, showing that the product is fit for purpose. Um, This is something that we'd raise at Christmas time, but we're now finding as we get into the Halloween and people are taking much more festive approach to it, there's a lot of decoration going on as well. All right. Well, we hope people have a happy and a safe Halloween. Thanks, Pat, for joining us. Pat Bracken is uh, Director of Corporate Services with the National Standards Authority of Ireland. Now, let's go back to some more of your thoughts. Marie, what else have you got for us? Some response, Michael, to your interview with Brendan Ogle of United Trade Union on the closure of the authentic food company in Dundalk. Martin says it's terrible that workers in the Dundalk factory have been treated so poorly. They knew that there was something amiss but the company appeared to have ignored their concerns and just pulled the plug. Another listener says says would be just awful if the workers don't get social welfare straight away. What are they supposed to do for money Michael if they have no jobs? I don't know. I mean, it's a, a dreadful situation that they find themselves in, obviously. A texter mm. says, is it not up to the parent company in the UK to compensate the workers in Dundalk? Well, that's the question that's being asked. Uh, moving on then to uh, your interview 
uh, we ha- uh, regarding motherhood, um, we had an, a text in from a listener who says, my children are grown up now with their own children and I was lucky that I lived in a time when I was able to give up my job for 10 years to look after them from home. I see my own daughters now and they are run ragged, as this listener puts it, trying to juggle everything. They just can't afford to stop working, Michael, because of the big mortgages they are paying. It's not easy being mm. a mother nowadays. No. It's not. Moving on then, yesterday we had Pada Tobin on uh, local uh, Sinn Féin jeopardy regarding the provision of abortion services and who should pay. Mm. A couple of texts in uh, just in response to that. Anthony from RD says, Michael, once again, Pada Tobin is perfectly right. Due to the arguments put forward by the yes side on TV debates, etc., many voters were left thinking that abortion would only apply to those who suffered incest, rape or fatal fetal abnormality. It is my belief that many did not realise that perfectly healthy babies would also be aborted for no other reason than inconvenience. Well, I think uh, most people informed themselves and would have known what was being proposed by the government. Pat from Drogheda says, why do journalists never ask Padre Tobin why, if he is so pro-life, why has he been in Sinn Féin for over 20 years? The party demanded of its members, particularly its elected representatives, that they give unequivocal support to the armed struggle. The IRA was the most, most ruthless killing machine, killing some 1,300 men, women and children over a 30-year period. It also killed its own members, leaving bodies in black ba- bags dumped along border roads in many cases. And the Sinn Féin website still has items for sale, glorifying the IRA. What has Pather Tobin ever done to condemn the IRA killers or to get an apology for the Irish people from Sinn Féin for supporting the perpetrators of these atrocities. Well, I think Patrick Tobin has uh, spoken about uh, the IRA and his uh, support for the IRA's armed campaign uh, many times uh, and he believes uh, that uh, it was a, a war situation. Mark was listening into our interview with um, Gavin Duffy yesterday in actual fact was watching the Facebook live and responded to that by saying that Ireland, Michael, the country were being a success in business or life is an impediment. That was in response to the interview. Oh, right. Another yeah. listener, Trays, says that it's sad that Gavin and the other, as she puts it, elitist millionaire dragons should, clearly judging by their numbers running, think of the position of president as something they could easily buy themselves into. Mm. So that was just a couple of responses to that interview. Uh, We also, just on the presidential debate in general, uh, another listener was in touch, Michael, just to say, think it's a pity that Sinn Féin was the only party to put forward a candidate for the election. Michael D. Higgins may be an independent candidate now because he is president, but remember he was elected as a a Labour candidate and now he is being supported by Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, so he is being backed by the establishment. Okay. So there we go. And we will, of course, be interviewing uh, Peter Casey shortly, another candidate. So I'm sure we'll have plenty of response to that, Michael. So we'll finish up on that if we can. Thanks for that, Marie. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us now. If you'd like to add to what's been said, 
As always, we'd love to hear from you. You can ring Marie or Maggie now on 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. On Friday, you'll be voting in uh, the presidential election. You'll have uh, six candidates uh, to choose from. One of them is uh, the independent candidate, Peter Casey, who's on the phone with us uh, this morning. Thanks for taking some time to be with us uh, ahead of uh, the vote. And perhaps like the other candidates who have uh, spoken to us on uh, the programme up to now, you'd like to begin this morning by setting out your stall as such and maybe uh, very briefly tell the people listening to us why they should vote for you on Friday. Michael, good morning. Good morning. The reason, Michael, that people should vote for me, I'm the only candidate in the race that actually says things as it is. The president is the guardian of the Constitution, but he also has a responsibility to bring to attention issues that need to be brought to attention. And there's nothing in the Constitution to stop the president from speaking out when he sees wrongs. Yes, he's not allowed to say anything contrary to government policy. Uh, That's very clear in the Constitution. But the president has the uh, the right, and indeed it's, it's, it's his obligation when he sees things that are clearly wrong to, 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 to bring attention to them. And there are many issues, as I've gone through the campaign, that have come to my attention. I started off saying, you know, I really wanted, because I've spent a third of my life in uh, three different continents, you know, I, spent, I started off saying, we've such an amazing, powerful, proud diaspora. If we could connect them in a meaningful way, Ireland is fighting so far below its weight in the world stage. You know, if we can connect them, and I believe that I could, uh, you know, that was my first platform, you know, because I'd seen how incredibly influential, for example, the, the Jewish people are in the world, and we are six times more than they are, and, but they're such an amazing people because they're connected, and they, they are bonded to each other, and we need to do the same. We need to emulate and be a strong... We're a very small country. We're a huge nation, and that is was initially what I wanted to try and do, uh, you know, to help and connect the Irish abroad with the Irish here. There's not a single, not a single family in Ireland who hasn't been affected by the blight of migration. You know, a third of the people born in Ireland have left Ireland. That, that's just that's just unbelievable when you to put it when you and that was initially. You know, and we should have a program to encourage the Irish abroad to send mm-hmm. their children over to Ireland so they can actually understand and absorb the Irish culture. You know, and when, when, when you talk about highlighting things that are, are wrong, uh, how do you decide what is right or, or wrong, or is that a, a subjective viewpoint? It's a it's a it's a subjective thing, you know. I, uh, I and what if the me, people of Ireland disagree with you and believe what you're saying is wrong? Well, that's there. Obviously, absolutely, that's absolutely Michael. Their entitlement. But does that make you suitable to be the president? Of course, it does. That's the reason I am suitable to be president because I am prepared to stand out and say what I think is right. And I think you'll find that you know I've, I've spent a lot of time traveling the world and understanding, understanding how different cultures operate, understanding you know how they fit in and mix together in different countries all around the world. You know, so for example, we know. We've been the recipient, uh, the recipient mm. of so much incredible generosity, Michael, over the years, Ireland has, you know. And now we've opened our doors and we've got so many wonderful, diverse cultures now in Ireland. So do you, you believe know? you always know what's right and what's wrong? No, I believe that I understand. My greatest strength is I understand how to listen, you know, and take things in. So, and I'm a very fast learner. So, you know, so, so if yeah. you highlight something you believe to be wrong and you've got it wrong, how do you undo that? You turn around and you say, I was wrong. 
So do you want to be an apologetic president? No, you don't. You don't shoot from the hip. I put a lot of time, Michael, thinking about things. I put a lot of time studying things, you know, and that's like I was a member of the Good Friday Peace team that was up at the White House discussing the whole Brexit issue and the whole um, Ireland, you know, the back uh, that led to the Good Friday Peace Agreement. You know, I was one of the, the delegation. There was about 300 people, 250, 250 people. And John Hume arranged for me to actually be a member of that delegation because I was uh, running a company in Ireland and a company in America at the time. And not once, Michael, did we talk. We talked about different options, alternatives, different forms of governance. Not once was the possibility of a Brexit ever mm. mentioned. Uh, Nobody even talked. Just explain what, what you're saying. That, that was part of a, a civil dialogue, was it? That, yes. yes. What happened okay. was yeah. uh, Ron Brown, who was the team, the minister, mm. he was the um, in charge of the. Uh, he was the commerce secretary. Yeah, but I think you're overstating your importance in terms of the Good Friday oh, Agreement. No, excuse me. I said there was 250, 300 mm. people there. So I'm not overstating. I'm just simply stating that I was there. I I was I was. If there was 250 people, I was probably 249 in terms of importance. But there were there were people there who were very important and influential. They didn't mention it once, Michael. Mm. That the possibility of a Brexit coming up. What, what 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 else do you identify uh, as being wrong? Uh, we've heard uh, complaints uh, uh, about uh, the travellers in Tipperary. We've uh, heard complaints you know, about I mean, the welfare Michael, society. You know, that, uh, do you do you identify child poverty in this country uh, as being a, a wrong that should be righted? I think that's that is something. Obviously, that's an issue, a very important issue, as is mental health, as is childhood obesity. Those are things that the government. Of the day are responsible for taking on and embracing those challenges. The president, he has a, a responsibility to, if the government hasn't taken a position on these things, then the, 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 the president is fully within his constitutional rights to, to, to draw attention to them, uh, as long as he doesn't speak out against the government policy or the policy of the government of the day. Right. Uh, and uh, that's what Michael D. Higgins has been doing in terms of child poverty, isn't it? Michael D. has spoken out on many issues that I and I would support his position on many of the issues that he's spoken out on. Okay, uh, so why replace him? He, he, he's not getting any younger, you know. And I believe that you need a president who's got high energy. Uh, you need a president who's got, you know, I, I have got much more global experience than he has. You know, last year my business has worked on six continents. The only one we didn't work on was Antarctica. I've, I've, I've spent a, you know, a large num- number of years traveling around and understanding, getting to know. Like, to give you an example, the mm. housing, you know, in, in New Zealand, they recently introduced a ban on uh, foreigners. Uh, you have to be a New Zealand citizen to buy a house because they felt that that would stop. There was speculation coming in from overseas buyers and shooting up prices so that New Zealanders couldn't buy houses. And that's something we should look at here. You know, then you also, if you look at the GI Bill in America after the World War II when all the servicemen were returning home, you know, there, they, they, there was a massive housing crisis. This isn't the first housing crisis, Michael, that is, you know, taking place in the world, you know. In fairness, Michael did, D. Higgins has quite a, a bit of global experience, doesn't he? Nothing. I would, nothing does he not? to me. Not at all. No. I've travelled over mm. 10 million miles. Now, I know, you know, mm. he's travelled quite a bit. But nothing compared to the number. I have over 10 million miles. It works out to be round about 375 times around the world. 
That's a little bit more than Michael, you know. But that's not the point. If you look at what America did at, when the servicemen came home, they introduced a, a co-funding, a shared ownership scheme where the government helped the ser- returning servicemen and women to actually buy homes. But they had to be new homes, right? And that stimulated one of the biggest growths and explosions in the American economy. They also helped fund the servicemen's and women's children into long-term education programs, you know? And they were able to get education and the children were able to go to universities. We need programs like that. It's the middle Ireland, the ones that are paying the taxes. They're the ones that are really being hurt at the moment. And we need to have a shared ownership scheme in Ireland to help people get onto the ladder. Because uh, otherwise, it's impossible for them to do, to do so. And, you know, it, it would also stimulate the economy. It would really stimulate the economy in a meaningful way, you know. All right. Uh, do you believe uh, that somebody born here, educated here, part of the local community uh, uh, should be deported? Or do you support uh, the campaign to stop the deportation of uh, this young boy in Bray? Oh, that's a, that's a tragic situation. Uh, you know, it really is. I mean, I on one hand, you know, you've got to... There is the law. The law has been broken. The law has to be enforced. And it's something that, you know, I would probably... I, I don't know the full facts of it. Uh, it. If the law has been broken, then the law has to be enforced, you know, but it's tragic. Uh, I need to really understand it better to give a more balanced and more defined judgment on it. Okay. No, in terms of all of the experience uh, you've had, um, have you ever experienced being without heat or a hot meal? I, I, I grew up in a two-up, two-down house in Derry, you know, with one of nine children, you know, that's how I started life off, you know. And uh, so the answer to your question, I, I never, ever needed for anything. I, and I had no idea how my parents provided, you know. And, you know, the strangest thing, Michael, you know, with, with nine children and mm. one toilet, I never, ever remember queuing up to get into the bathroom in the morning. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and we were all rushing to get out to school at the same time. You know, Michael, I've, I've got it. There's, I've got another. They're waiting on for you. Another show. Is there a last quick one that you need? Or, or? oh no, that's grand. Okay, Michael, look, thanks, thanks a lot, and uh, best time, of luck Michael. to you in your uh, campaign, uh, and uh, best of luck to all of uh, the thanks. candidates. Thanks. Uh, thank you, indeed, independent candidate Peter Casey. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, when you take into account how we're living longer and uh, the ageing demographics, we will need an additional 4 million hours of home care on top of what is already being provided in order to cope. This will cost €110 million. It's according to the Care Alliance Ireland Group, which publishes a report today that shows some staggering differences in terms of the waiting time that people have to endure whilst uh, they've already been assessed for home care. I've been speaking with Limo Sullivan, who's uh, the Executive Director of Care Alliance Ireland. Indeed. So we found that there was a real variation in the length of time that people were waiting for home care. Um, and even more nuanced than that, we found there was significant variations in how different regions within the HSC seem to assess need so in some areas, there seemed to be an emphasis on, in a sense, clearing waiting lists and, and trying to offer a small bit of home care, maybe to a large number of people. And then in other regions, we're finding that 
there's a different approach that perhaps tries to focus home care on those in particular high need, but that can in itself create lengthy waiting lists. Mm. So there's some challenges in delivering high quality home care. Um, and we, this report that we're launching today hopes to kind of tease out some of those findings and, and make recommendations around what we need to better support Ireland's 360,000 family carers. And the average time that people wait is uh, around three months from having been assessed and approved, uh, but uh, nothing happens in the interim. That's right. Very much people are waiting um, for a public health nurse maybe to visit, meet with, with the person who needs care and their wider family. Um, and these things can take time and then put the application form in, then the consideration is assessed by a local maybe health a multidisciplinary team, mm. which is all important, but but sometimes families are left unnecessarily waiting, um, and they don't hear back, or they're maybe being assessed as in need of maybe twelve hours home care, but the, the HSE comes back and says, well, we can only give you six because mm. resources are so limited. So yes, six hours or four hours is better than nothing, but often families are struggling with that with with those delays and, 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 and quite. Quite often you have to jump through hoops, don't you? I mean, as you say, there's a multidisciplinary team, a physiotherapist and so on will come in and have a look at how you might care for somebody at home and how assistance would help with that and so on. But in the meantime, what happens to the person who's in need of this help if they are in need of it and they're not receiving it? Well, that's it. Unfortunately, sometimes it does result in, in, in people not being getting the care they need. And, and family across Ireland do so much to, to support their loved ones. But sometimes they do need that extra help, even just to help someone have a shower. Sometimes it's a two-person job. Um, or to give a family carer a break if it's round-the-clock care. That can be really challenging, particularly if a family ne- member is holding down a job or have other care responsibilities. Um, and, and our society is wonderful that we value and, and we, we support family carers in, in some ways, but I, I think there's definitely a gap there. We, we, we seem to spend a whole lot more money on supporting residential care, mm. and I think to the detriment of supporting people to live well at home. And the level of assistance that people will receive at best is still very limited. It's uh, three hours a, a day maximum, and that usually breaks out at three hours split over the day, one in the morning perhaps, uh, one again at lunchtime and one in the evening. Uh, and you're writing about this in uh, the Irish Independent today, asking uh, about uh, how much the rest of us might value 30 minutes. We mightn't think much of it, but how... Uh, incredibly valuable 30 minutes is to somebody in need of assistance. Well, that's it, Michael. I mean, if you know people getting three hours home care a day, um, I tell you, we, we don't know that many. I think that's very much the, the the extreme end of the support that's available. The average is, is, is six hours a week, often not available um, at weekends, and it might be in those 30-minute blocks. And yes, in, in our in our um, article in, in The Independent this morning, we talk about what can you do in 30 minutes, and and everyone knows you sit down and you watch maybe an episode of something you like on TV and it, it, it flies by. So how, how we can expect, you know, um, relatively poorly paid home care workers to come in to get someone up and dressed and, and showered or shaved or feed them in 30 minutes really is a little bit incredulous. And, and that's another, I suppose, ask is that we really seek to minimise those short visits um, because it is about companionship and, and, mm. and reducing the sense of isolation, particularly maybe for people who are living alone who don't have family around. 
that that sense of companionship is, is really invaluable in, in supporting their quality of life. Because it's not just the loneliness that people face, as you say, sometimes they're being assisted in getting out of bed or getting washed uh, and without somebody coming in, uh, they're going to stay in bed or not get washed. Well, that's it. And I think it's really important that we provide people with care support needs a kind of a purpose in living and um, rather than just accept that you know it's it, it's a natural part of aging that we just you know shrivel up and wither away that there's such a vib- vibrant and great opportunities to live well as we age and i think we have the wealth and um, there's resources there the hsc is, is you know there's a lot of extra funds gone into the hsc over the coming year and what we're asking is that at least a small piece of that is 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 provided for home care supports, which mm. really are it speaks to the the Slauncher care report. It speaks to the idea of delivering care in the least in the least complicated way in people's homes. But Liam, uh, when you talk uh, about people waiting on a, an average of three months, uh, I take it some people are waiting less time, and some people are at the other end of uh, the scale, which uh, people can realise very quickly by taking a look at the front page of uh, the Irish Independent that in some circumstances people are waiting for more than two years. What happens in that time period? Sure, and, and to be fair, I think the two-year figure is, is exceptional rather than the norm. The average is about three months, three to four months. For priority and urgent cases, often, to be fair to the HSC, home care is delivered in a much quicker time. If it's palliative or end-of-life care, often there isn't a wait list. So I think those exceptions are perhaps people who, who could benefit with a little bit of support or maybe put on a waiting list. But you do wonder, after a year or two, you know, who's checking in with them? Have their needs changed? Are they perhaps moved to a more urgent care support needs? Or indeed, have they ended up in hospital or nursing home? Um, For want of a few hours home care, you you would hate to think that that's what happens. But we do know anecdotally that does happen, that there's a statutory right to Mm. um, the fair deal, but there's no legal right to home care. And, And that's something that the government has talked about doing but you know what, they've been talking about doing for a couple of years. I think we really need to move on this and make it a priority for the Department of Health um, to get new legislation, to get political buy-in. Um, and, you know, the majority of people in research have said, yes, we're willing to co-pay mm. to make a financial contribution to this care because it's important and because it's valuable. But quite often, I, I take it uh, that the people who are waiting that length of time are already in hospital uh, and uh, aren't coming home because uh, the package hasn't been made available to them and they're left languishing in hospital and become known uh, as bed blockers. And, and sometimes those, that does happen. And there's almost a perverse incentive because there is resourcing made available now to, to get people out of hospital, mm. which is great. But you really want to look at the preventative piece. I, I read recently up to a quarter of admissions are, are unnecessary. So we really need to be more careful in how we direct people towards hospitals. And, and we really need to do everything we can do to keep people out of hospital. Mm. For some people, they need to be there. And absolutely, that's that's the right place to be. But there's definitely a, a cohort of particularly ageing people who really can be better served by staying at home and, and, and by quite o- that care. Quite, quite often these are, are people who've had uh, a stroke, for example, uh, and uh, are capable of going home and uh, don't need to go to a nursing home but have been clinically discharged from the hospital. Uh, they've been assessed for home care and the assessment is uh, that between the family, uh, the home care that they receive from the state and maybe some adjustments uh, to the house, uh, well then it's possible for somebody to come home and that would be in their best interest. But it doesn't 
doesn't happen because uh, the home care isn't available. Uh, and sometimes uh, a grant has been given and adjustments have been made to the house and people are, are left waiting for a year or two years despite all of this. And I think what there is, there's a disconnect sometimes between hospital and community. And we really need, our healthcare professionals, I think, need to really try harder to make those that communication between hospitals and, and community better. So there isn't fights over budgets, there isn't fights over is this disability budget or older people or hospital, that we're looking at the, the person in a holistic way and what resources positions in what way can get someone home and look at so that they can be cared for well and stay well out of hospital. Hospitals cost 1,200 euro a day to keep someone in a hospital. You can provide good quality care for someone at home, you know, for a couple of hours Mm. home care for less than 100 euro. Yeah, and that's the difference. Uh, you want to put on a, a statutory footing, uh, the right to home care to be put on a, a statutory footing. I, indeed, uh, this is something that the government is looking at as we speak. Absolutely, and a number of charities across the, the kind of disability and ageing sector have come together and are trying seeking to influence the process and really to move it forward so that older, so as we all age, because there's an extra 20,000 people coming into that kind of 65 and over cohort each year, we're all getting older, we're all living generally weller, which is great, but we also want to be able to live with confidence that there will be quality and accessible home care available um, when it's needed. Uh, incidentally, uh, your survey uh, is incomplete, isn't it? Uh, because uh, it, it's uh, based on the information given to you by the HSE through freedom of information requests from nine regions, uh, but only three regions responded to you. Indeed, and it does raise the question for us is the quality of the reporting, the documentation, the assessment processes. We've also called that we really need to look at a, a single assessment process so that we're giving people consistency in assessment and in provision across the counties in, in Ireland. And we don't get the sense from this research that that's happening. Some areas are saying we haven't got the figures. Some are saying it's too much work to get them. Yet, to be fair, a number of regions gave the details without question. Um, and we think that should be available from all regions. And we'd like to, I suppose, put it up to the HSE and the managers in the various regions say, why isn't it? Lee O'Sullivan is uh, the Executive uh, Director of Care Alliance Ireland. He spoke to me before we came on air today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a, a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Sergeant Tony Ward of Navin Station joins us for the report this week and uh, we begin in uh, the Drogheda district uh, where Gardaí are hoping uh, for some information on some criminal damage that has occurred. Uh, that's correct. Good morning. Uh, the Gardaí and Drogheda are investigating a criminal damage incident which occurred at Rathmullen Park, Drogheda at 12.15am on Monday morning the 22nd of October. Uh, that's the early hours of yesterday morning. During the course of this incident a glass bottle believed to have contained an accelerant was located outside the front sitting room window of the property. A technical examination was carried out and Drogheda Gardaí are appealing for anybody who may have witnessed the incident or indeed anybody who has information which could assist the investigation to contact them at 041-987-4200 or indeed the Garda Confidential Line at 1800-666-111. OK, petrol bomb of sorts, I I gather then. Um, We go to Kells and a a burglary that has happened locally. 
Yes, uh, this incident, the Gardaí and Kells are investigating a burglary incident which occurred at Drewstown at Boy County Mead on Monday the 15th of October between 7.30am and 4.45pm. During the course of this incident, uh, significant damage was caused to the home. Again, the Gardaí have carried out a technical examination and Gardaí and Kells are appealing for anybody who may have information to assist their investigation to contact them directly at 046 or again, the Garda Confidential Line on 1800-666-111. Another case of criminal damage uh, to report on this week, this time in Navan. Yes, this further case of criminal damage has been investigated at Navan Gardaí, and they're investigating a suspicious fire which occurred at Ballarat, Navan Mead, at 3.50am on Monday morning, the 22nd of October, just gone. During the course of this incident, significant damage was caused to the home, which was unoccupied at the time. The Gardaí and Navan are appealing for anybody who may have information to, ass- to assist this investigation to contact them directly at 046 903 6100 or again the Gardaí confidential line can be utilised on 1800 666 111. Okay, and to uh, a burglary uh, which is being investigated by Gardaí and Ashburn. Ashburn Gardaí are investigating a burglary which occurred at Kulfour Ashburn Mead on Thursday last, the 18th of October at 11.15pm. During the course of this incident, entry was gained to the home through a forced back door. Uh, During the course of this incident, a white van with a refrigerated cooler on the roof was observed leaving the scene in the direction of Slane, County Mead, and Ashburn Gardaí are appealing for anybody who may have information to assist their investigation to contact them directly on 01 801 0600 or indeed, again, the Garda Confidential Line on 1800-666-111. Okay, to Kells, more criminal damage? As for the criminal damage incidents occurred at Kells as, uh, in now Old Castle County Mead and is, is being investigated by the Gardaí in Kells. Uh, this incident occurred at Gilson Park, Old Castle Mead. The incident occurred overnight on Saturday the 20th uh, to Sunday the 21st of October, just gone. During the course of this incident, uh, dressing rooms, toilets and dugouts at the location were damaged by graffiti. Anybody who may have information to assist the Gardaí in Kells with their investigation are urged to contact 46 928-0820. Okay, the last of uh, the reports uh, this week, a burglary being investigated in RD. Yeah, this final incident refers to RD Garda Station where they're investigating a burglary which occurred at the crossbar, Stabannon, on Friday the 19th of October between midnight and 4.40pm. And during the course of this incident, incident, entry was gained to the premise, premises and significant damage to property was caused. Anybody in a position to assist the Guardian RD are urged to contact them directly on 041-9687-1130 or, or finally again the Garda Confidential Line on 1800-666-111. All right, and uh, before you leave us uh, this week, uh, some uh, advice uh, in particular for shop owners and people who deal with cash for that matter uh, because uh, there's some counterfeit notes in circulation. Yes, um, finally, the Guardian, in both Loud and Mead have requested that I highlight a number of recent incidents where counterfeit €50 Euro notes have been distributed to business and retail premises. And we would urge that retail premises be vigilant in regards to these types of incidents and further detailed advice can be obtained at www.centralbank.ie in regards to the checking of €50 Euro notes.
All right, thanks uh, for that, Sergeant Tony Ward. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, before we leave you today, we'll return to you and indeed some of uh, the calls and comments that have been coming to us over the course of uh, the morning. Marie is back with us and uh, you've had uh, some people on the phone. We have indeed, Michael. And a listener rang in actually to Karen in reception here uh, just to say that she's not really sure what the referendum on Friday is about and is just wondering, would we be doing any coverage on it? So just to say we will be tomorrow. Okay, and uh, that's uh, the referendum on blasphemy. That's uh, right. Which uh, we did discuss in the programme yesterday. We'll debate uh, the merits of removing blasphemy from the Constitution or not on the programme tomorrow. Yes, and the listener also asked, and it's interesting, Michael, that people aren't sure about Mm. things in relation to this election. Is it just number one in the presidential election or is there an, will there be an option to vote all the way through like there is in other elections? I believe so, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The whole way down. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> all yeah. six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then just moving on from that, uh, on care supports, Eddie phoned in to say that more care supports are needed to be provided to enable our elderly to live at home for the rest of their lives or for as long as they can. The whole system, Eddie feels, needs to be looked at. The government has been putting it on the long finger for too long but those who are caring at home know the lack of supports. Mm. And even when there is support I'm sure many of the people who receive it would say it's lacking. I think Care Assistance Ireland or the Care Alliance Ireland group is saying that support levels are 15% below what they actually should be Uh, but the idea of being uh, assessed uh, that you qualify that you are in need of home care and having to wait three months which is the average is Mm. hard to contemplate let alone the idea of having to wait two years Uh, it's hard to understand uh, how that could be the situation absolutely it must be Mm. just horrendous for families of the of the loved one that's waiting to be assessed or waiting to, to have those supports. Sinead from Drogheda was in touch and she says that as a population we are living longer, Michael, mm. and therefore the government needs to be thinking about having proper supports in place to cope with our ageing population. Getting one or two hours a day of home help, which many people are getting, is just not enough in some situations. Mm. And often old people end up in hospitals when really they shouldn't have ended up in hospital mm. if they were getting the proper yeah. care and supports at home. And then this does block up beds mm. and creates another problem. Yeah. And mm. she feels that it's a catch-22 situation that more resources are are needed. And she points out also that uh, she says, as someone with an elderly parent, that most elderly people want to be and prefer to be at home. Well, of course they do. I mean, we all do. Everybody does. Nobody wants to be in hospital or a a nursing home for that matter. Very... Uh, strange way of life for somebody uh, who doesn't need to be there. Uh, That's right. And uh, very uh, unhelpful if uh, they are in need of assistance uh, of source uh, because it can have a, a negative impact on uh, their uh, future for that matter but uh, that's the case that many people find themselves in it's a, a peculiar situation but it is as she says the price of an ageing population uh, we all want to live forever sort of thing uh, but uh, there is a price 
Uh, Teresa from County Meath phoned in, not about something we were, we, we were talking about today, Michael, or the last few days, but something she's concerned about and it annoys her. And she says, I've been reading in the papers about how the gym in Leinster House is being given a revamp and they're apparently spending 100,000 or more on this. And she says that it just annoys her when you see so many services in need of money. When you look at the homeless and people lying on trolleys, do they really need to spend the money on doing up the gym? Should it really be a priority, she mm-hmm. wants to know. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, healthy body, healthy mind, or well, the other way it. around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, parking in Drogheda, we've been covering this, the pay parking, not just in Drogheda, but throughout the county. Have I time mm-hmm. for one or two yeah, more? I have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Declan was in touch. He, he says that he was listening in to our various discussions and uh, the financial situation that Loud County Council finds itself in. Declan says that he's from Drogheda and he'd gladly pay Michael the 120 for parking. Mm. But uh, with the, the proviso, I suppose, that the money would definitely be ring-fenced for local projects. And mm. he says, therein lies the problem, that how can we be sure of that? How can we be sure that if the money is raised in Drogheda or indeed in Dundalk that it stays in those towns. Well, that goes back to the debate we had on the programme the other day with P.O. Smith contending that uh, they could increase the rate by 20 cents an hour and that that money raised locally could be used locally and that that is uh, reserved to function uh, that is available to the councillors. Uh, But there does be an awful fuss about the price of parking, doesn't there, given that uh, it's one twenty an hour, but you can put in 20 cents or 40 cents for that matter. Yes, in, in the, the council mm. area parking, yeah. which but is that's, a good... Well, that's the right we're talking yes, about. Yes, that it is. Yeah. And, it, mm. and that is fantastic mm. if you only have to run into a shop. Mm. It is fair. Yeah. If, if you only... Say if you're only going in for a certain amount mm. of time, you, ca- you can get away yeah. with putting in the 20 cents. I mean, people really uh, fuss about it, but in reality, it makes very little difference to most people. It does, but then I suppose what annoys a lot of people, I think, in this yeah. debate is that one part of the county was dearer than the other, uh, Michael. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. what the problem is. With That's a lot it, of indeed. That's exactly what it is. All right, <laughs> we leave it on that now. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us. That's where we have to leave you for today because our time has run out on us once again. Remember, there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.